2: Before we get to today's podcast, I want to introduce one of our great sponsors, and that is Greenlight Tech. You know, every sport needs a team. It's the same in business. That's why more small to mid-sized businesses in South Florida are choosing Greenlight Tech, the full-service concierge IT company that always gets it right. Greenlight Tech advises, monitors, supports, and keeps your important data backed up and secure. They will even manage your vendors. Call Greenlight Tech at 561-561. 325-9997 that's 561-325-9997 mention this ad and you'll get a free assessment and if you sign up your first month will also be free you go team when you go on green visit greenlighttech.com that's greenlighttek.com and now on with the show Welcome into episode 57 of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here, as always, with Chris Whittingham. Thank you for finding us. We're on iTunes. Also, if you have Android, we're on Google Play, CastBox, and our hosting app, Podbean. Be sure to find the other podcasts in our network. That's Miami Heat Beat, The Balls Cast, Three Yards Per Carry, which is our Dolphins podcast, and also Chris Whittingham's podcast on Soccer Pitch Invasion, which launched last week. Also, we'll be having upcoming episodes with Chris Chambers, former Dolphin, and also with the Miami Heat captain, Udonis Haslam. All right, let's get to our episode today. We wanted to touch on the NBA Finals, do a preview before the Finals on Thursday. I know that a lot of people are frustrated about this around the country. They've seen it enough times. We've seen it now the past three seasons and they really didn't want to see it again. But the ratings actually have shown a little bit different. And Chris, today wanted to bring in an old friend, somebody I worked alongside when I was in Cleveland for that one year in 2014-2015. does a great job for Cleveland.com, covering the Cavs, also is a host on 92.3. And you're going to have to explain this to people, Chris Fedor, before we go any further here. You're a Taylor Swift fan,
1: is that correct?
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Probably the biggest one in the world. <laughs>
1: I once sang Taylor Swift Shake It Off at a karaoke event for 7.90 the ticket. So I guess I am with you in this area.
0: had a boy. See, and it's funny, too, because a lot of people try and bring it up when we're having dinner before, like, a big game or something like that to make me embarrassed. Like, oh, we're going to bring this up, and we're going to make him really, really embarrassed and put him on the spot with a bunch of other writers around the country. And it's like, yeah, I love Taylor Swift. What else you got? Bring it up.
2: <laughs> How many times have you seen her in person, Fedor?
0: So just one, but uh, that's not because it's not something that I would want to do or I'm embarrassed to do. It's like I've seen once and I don't know if there's anything else that I could see again. You know what I'm saying? Like, so if it's not exactly concert once. I feel like you you've already seen it and that's all you need.
2: Well, hold on a second. I mean, the Grateful Dead is performing like 40 years later and Jerry Garcia has been dead for more than a decade. So, I don't I don't know if that's true for all old bands. I mean, you know, Keith Richards I think has died four times and is still performing with the Rolling Stones. So, I think I think it's possible if an act is good enough, Chris, that you may want to see it more than once. So, you may want to reconsider really whether Taylor Swift is the pinnacle of entertainment because you
1: might want to see her But again. are we sure that Chris is wrong, or are people who go and see the same band to hear the same songs 20 times the ones with the problem? Because they're the ones Thank that are living you. a redundant lifestyle, whereas Chris is sort of, I, I took in that experience, and I can only try and recreate it. I've already lived it. That's good enough for me.
0: Thank you. That's what I'm talking about, Chris. See, Ethan, that's that's where you're off. It's not a band, right? Where like, okay, so if you've seen Journey with the lead singer, like that's one thing, and then you've seen Journey with a different lead singer, That's a way different thing. It's Taylor Swift. Like, you don't go to see her drummer. You don't go to see the guitar player. You go to see her, and she's not really going to change all that much. Like, her songs could change, and the new singles could be different and stuff like that, but it's not something that's like, okay, because there's this new entity to this group I'm going to go see them because it's going to be different. It's her and her in 2017 is still going to be her in 2018, 19, 20 and so on and so forth.
2: I could do this for 60 minutes, actually. And we also could get into The Bachelor with you because I know that you're a regular viewer of that and The Bachelorette, I believe. But uh, we're going to try to talk uh, yeah. a bit I about mean, basketball.
0: Monday night was a big night. Like I had to make the decision myself. Am I going to watch the premiere of The Bachelorette or am I going to watch Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals live? And it was a very, very tough decision, let me tell you.
1: Which ended up winning?
0: Well, work ended up winning. Um, I had to go with the Western Conference Finals because I had to write the story about who the Cavs were going to be playing, and I thought that was pretty important. So I had to DVR the Bachelorette.
1: But if the Celtics had won on Sunday, which would you have chosen?
0: Oh, I probably would have chosen the Bachelorette. (laughs) (laughs) I'm comfortable enough saying that. I I know myself well enough to say that I would probably have chosen that.
2: I bet you one of the bachelorette or one of the uh, the candidates to marry the bachelorette or date the bachelorette. I don't even know how it works anymore, but uh, I bet one of those candidates. Anymore, you're, made... you're
0: acting
1: as if the show has
2: changed. It's the same. Well, <laughs> but, Okay, we'll see. This is another point. I, so if that's true, Fedor is okay seeing Taylor Swift just once, but is now watched 15.
1: Bachelor. It's a different bachelor. It's a different <laughs> bachelorette. It's different people with right. personality <laughs> disorders, okay? Yeah. It's different personality disorders each and every season. It's a totally different experience. Well, maybe. I bet yeah. you.
2: That, I bet you that the candidates there could have made more than one out of twenty-seven threes. Um, so probably uh, <laughs> you would have been a better choice to watch the Bachelor. You know basketball. they
0: could have, and I guarantee they could have, because there is a former Harlem Globetrotter <laughs> buying for Becca's bro. Oh man, swear! <laughs> I forget his name. Oh man, I forget his name, and he said it. But he he dunked over her in the premiere. It was pretty special. Wow.
2: I booked this guest just a couple hours ago when again, we can still go back on it. But let's go to uh, let's go to some basketball here. Let's get into the Cavs a little bit. You know, again, you're talking to a mostly Miami audience, and I know you're not afraid. I think one of the things that people who in Miami who may not have been exposed to you may not realize when we do this is you are like the furthest thing from a Cavs homer. Like you call it exactly as you see it and you take the brunt for doing that as on Twitter and on radio and elsewhere. So the, the title of this episode, Chris, is going to be how the hell do the Cavs pull this off? Because you look right now at, at where Vegas has them. And I put this on Twitter today. What would be a bigger upset? The LeBron of 2018 beating the 2018 Warriors or the LeBron of 2007 Beating the 2007 Spurs, um, who were kind of at the peak of their powers there. And the majority of people, almost 80%, said this would be a bigger upset. And again, LeBron lost that series in a sweep. So that's where people are coming down on this. Now, Vegas actually is saying the same thing. um, The Cavs are a much bigger underdog in 2018 than they were in 2007. So we're going to start here with part one, Chris. And obviously, we're familiar with what LeBron's capable of. Winningham and I did an episode recently where we made an argument that this may be the best LeBron we've ever seen. What does he have to do in this series just by himself for the Cavs to have a chance?
0: Well, I think it starts with him, obviously. It's not only going to be about him. The supporting cast has to step up. I mean, the Cavs are 10-1 and 1 so far in this postseason run when they get four or more players in double figures. So the balance scoring is something that they have needed throughout the course of this playoff run. But you're right. It all starts with LeBron, starts and ends with LeBron. He's the primary creator. He's the primary distributor. He's the primary scorer, primary rebounder at times, shot blocker. He's everything for this team. They don't really have much of an offensive system. It's kind of just LeBron-centric. So he's got to be as good as he's been throughout the course of this postseason and maybe take his game to another level if that's even possible. And I think that's the hard conversation, guys, is that LeBron has been so unbelievable over the last couple of months of the regular season that you said – Well, I don't know if playoff LeBron is going to be different than end of regular season LeBron because he did take his game to a completely different level. He made the the determination to do that right around the trade deadline. He told a lot of us that he had a shift in mentality and he said, no matter what we do when it comes to trades, I'm going to be different. And that guy that showed up in the final two months of the regular season, you didn't know that he could really elevate even more into quote unquote playoff LeBron, because usually there's a huge difference between playoff LeBron and regular season LeBron, but it was hard to see that happening this year. And yet it happened. (laughs) I mean, he's been absolutely unbelievable. He's been so much better than every other player in the NBA throughout the course of the playoffs. And I think he's going to have to even better what he did in this postseason run against the Eastern Conference. And if there's such thing as finals, LeBron, that's where it's going to have to start for the Cavs.
1: I would say if you're looking at things that he would have to do better than he's done already in these Eastern Conference playoffs, and it's obscene to even say that he can (laughs) do things that are better. But I would start with Number one, defend. I, I think that you saw in the Boston games where there were times where he just switches off. And look, at a certain point, he's got to rest, right? And I think like, right. I, I think this is a series where maybe he takes four minutes off a game and the Cavs just try and survive with him off the floor because he has to be switched on on every defensive possession against his team for them to win. So basically what I'm, what I'm saying is, have even more energy, have even more stamina, which seems impossible given they just played a 48-minute game. And again, th- th- this is making the case for them to win. I'm not saying for them to compete. If, if he was about the same, they could maybe win a game, maybe two. But if they're going to win, like it, it's going to require even more defensively. And I think from an offensive point of view... He can control the pace of the game, similar to what Houston did, which to me is just totally bogged the game down. I think stylistically, the way that Cleveland can win games in the series is 92-89, not 113-108. I think that they have to figure out ways to bog the game down. And he has to play out of the post when he gets switched onto smaller guys and take advantage of that size disparity and really go to work. And it's it, it, like, like you said, Chris, he's going to have to get teammates involved. But I think the two things that we haven't really seen him do a ton of in this postseason, which is really come in on the defensive end, which we, we saw him straight up block Terry Rozier, and he got he had a chase down block as well. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying possession in, possession out, defending. He's going to have to improve on. And I think, and, and Ethan, you, you, we've, we've talked about this in our uh, Five Reasons group chat where he's not really a big fan of posting up. I don't think if he really is about winning in this series – that he's going to have to put aside some of the things that he doesn't want to do, get down low, grab rebounds, post up, because he is such a deadly player out of those situations.
2: LeBron's averaging in the postseason so far 34-9-8. and eight. My question for you, Chris, is when you look at how the Warriors have guarded him over the years, and the primary defender has been Iguodala. Obviously, we know that that his injury situation is a big one coming into this series. Do you think we'll see Durant more on him I know they did quite a bit of that in the finals last year Draymond how do you think that the Warriors will approach him
0: see I think that's the thing Ethan and Chris that the Warriors have more so than anybody else and in the formula to beating the Cavs I think a lot of people know it I think there is a blueprint to doing it but you have to have the pieces to do it too And one of the first things that you have to have is multiple guys that you can throw at LeBron. Nobody's going to stop LeBron. There is no such thing as a LeBron stopper. But you just have to make him work. You have to make him inefficient. And if he works and you make him work for 48 minutes throughout the course of a game, it's going to affect other areas of his game. It's going to affect the Cavs. It might affect his defense. And the thing that the Warriors have is that They have Draymond Green that they can use for certain possessions. They have Kevin Durant that they can use and feel okay with the matchup. They have Andre Iguodala, and they feel okay with Iguodala. Again, nobody's going to stop him, but you feel like you're not giving up all that much if you try those primary defenders against him. So I think it's going to be a mix of different guys, and the Warriors are going to switch everything. That's how they've been built. That's what makes their defense so very good. Um, Clay Thompson's going to take a couple of possessions against LeBron, and it's just no matter where you go if you're the Cavs, unless you get Steph Curry on LeBron over and over and over again, um, it's not as big of a mismatch as it could be against most other teams that you play against, and that's what makes the Warriors so difficult for the Cavs to generate consistent offense.
2: The reality is, as you said, LeBron went into that final stretch of the season knowing that he needed to take control. He goes into these finals knowing that he has to take control in the same way that in the 2015 finals, um, the one that I covered up there he knew he had to because he was playing with, and no disrespect, James Jones and Matthew Della Vadova for heavy minutes because he didn't yep. have either Kyrie or Love. And I remember during that series, Dwayne Wade was actually up in Cleveland doing some TV work and talking to Dwayne about it. And Dwayne was saying that sometimes LeBron is just better off without another star on the floor with him. And again, that was one of the issues that, you know, he had with Dwayne at the very beginning. And I know at times with Kyrie was that sometimes there's a little bit of deference there. Whereas when he doesn't have anybody anywhere near his quality, and in this particular case, I mean, that's really the case, then he just takes over and he is more aggressive and he's free to do that. And he doesn't feel any of the sort of guilt. I think that at times he has felt, On the floor uh, where he, you know, we go back to his heat days where he got a lot of grief for, say, passing to Udonis Haslam. There's none of that here because (laughs) he knows he doesn't have anybody else that he can rely on. And so I want to transition with that here to number two. And let's stay with the Cavs on this one. And one of the, the differences between this year and 2007, which is getting brought up a lot, is that as bad as that team looks on paper, There were actually three other guys during that postseason that averaged at least 11 points in Drew Gooden, in Ilgalskis, and also in Larry Hughes. So there were three other guys that averaged at least 11. And LeBron averaged, and I know this was a much younger LeBron, but he averaged 25 in that postseason. And a lot of that was because he averaged only about 17 in the finals. But this time around, he's only got one guy averaging more than 10 points with him, and that's Kevin Love at 13.9. I mean, he's he's basically, if you look at his field goals right now, he's averaging as many field goals per game as the next four players combined in Love, Corver, Hill, and J.R. Smith. Is this the worst supporting cast that you've seen him play with in Cleveland? Uh,
0: I mean, 2007 was so long ago, so, I mean, usually you're going to get caught up in the now and what's happening now. And you're going to lean on that because it's so familiar to you. I just, I keep going back to the fact that like Kevin Love, while this is not a great matchup for him against Golden State and the previous matchup against Boston wasn't great either that previous team that a lot of people are comparing this to didn't have a guy like Kevin. And I keep going back to that. So he hasn't gotten as much help throughout the course of this postseason run, but I think this team at its peak at its highest level is probably better than the one that he dragged to the finals against San Antonio.
2: I want to touch a little bit more on Kevin Love, Chris, um, because you, you talk about it being a nightmare for him. Now, if you look at his last two finals, Against uh, the Warriors obviously didn't play in 2015 in 2016. He averaged 26 minutes 8.6 points a game 6.8 rebounds 36 percent from the floor Last finals, 32 minutes a game, 16 points, 11.2 rebounds. He was a little more productive, 39% from the floor. I guess my question with Kevin Love is this, and I know you mentioned Boston wasn't a great matchup, Golden State's not a great matchup. The reason I've always had trouble classifying Kevin Love as a top 25 player since he's Mm -hmm. gone to Cleveland is that there are just too many bad matchups for him. It just seems like we talk about that with a lot of teams. I mean, Houston is not a great matchup for him either. I mean, San Antonio traditionally, if you look at it, has not been a great matchup for him. And I just, you know, as we look at this overall experiment with Kevin Love, and look, Andrew Wiggins has had his own issues in Minnesota, and they they may move on from him. But when we look at the overall Kevin Love experiment, I mean, he was supposed to be in a position this year to take over as that number two guy from Kyrie, which supposedly was what his supporters and maybe even himself wanted, right? Because that was the whole thing. Kevin got pushed to the third role like Chris Bosh, and it was challenging for him. Now he's in the second role. Shouldn't we be seeing like a Kevin Love that can give you 22 and 12 on a more consistent basis and be that guy for LeBron if he's really a top 25 guy in the league?
0: I mean, I think that's fair. And I think what you're saying is right. I think the problem that Kevin has run into is that there's so much variance in his game. And it's like if he's not making shots, it's very, very difficult for him to stay on the court because he's going to get attacked over and over and over on the defensive end. If he's making shots, then all of a sudden you start to, to live with some of those defensive deficiencies or it makes it easier to accept those. And I think one of the values that Kevin brings to the table, similar to Chris Bosch is that he can play the four and the five. And usually, if the Cavs play him at the five, he's usually too quick for the centers out on the perimeter, and he has no problem with that. Or he's too powerful if they try and downsize. So that's usually the advantage that the Cavs have. Unfortunately, he ran into a situation against Boston where they had a similar guy like that in Al Horford. And against the Indiana Pacers... It was Thaddeus Young, and that was a tough matchup for him, too. I had somebody in the Cavs organization call Thaddeus throughout that series, Draymond of the East. There's just certain guys that can negate the things that the Cavs love about Kevin, and Draymond is one of those guys, and it's going to be very, very difficult for him. So I understand where you're coming from on that, and I think it's just a matter of, When he's making shots, when he's engaged offensively, when he's taking advantage of mismatches, you can deal with the other flaws to his game. If he's not making those shots, then he becomes a negative.
2: All right, let's move on to part three here. Let's stay with the Cavs, Chris. And you've mentioned a couple of these guys as we've been talking, but it's been interesting, a couple of the ones that you have not mentioned, because I think it speaks to what happened here during the season. Now, I know Kobe Altman was in a very difficult position um, because the, the first trade backfired with Isaiah. Clearly, that was not working with LeBron. Jay Crowder didn't play at the level that he played at in Boston, which seems to be a pretty consistent thing about everybody, I guess, but Olenek, uh who came out of Boston this past year, played worse in their new surroundings, um, Isaiah and Jay and obviously Avery Bradley with Detroit. And then additionally, you know, Dwayne's situation where it looked like his role was going to come back a little bit from where it was earlier in the season. So Kobe makes the trades, brings in four guys for four guys. Now we're going into the finals and we're really only talking about one of them as being a core rotation piece, which is George Hill. Can they get anything at all out of Clarkson and Nance and Hood in this series?
0: that's the fascinating thing, guys, because I really think at the time that they made the trades for those guys, they had the Warriors in mind and the pieces that they felt like helped them against the Warriors. And I feel like the NBA in the playoffs is all about matchups. It was all about skill set and it's all about traits. And they looked at Larry Nance Jr. and they said, this is a young dude, athletic, he can run. He can switch everything. We can put him on a point guard. He can bring some defensive intensity. So that's what they liked about him. But he's been hit and miss in this postseason. You know, he had some moments where he was really good against the Celtics. And then in game seven, the Celtics attacked him over and over and over again. And he's not as much of an offensive threat. And against a stingy defense like the Warriors, arguably the best defense in the NBA, you know, it's tough to play four on five. Um, Rodney Hood is somebody who, you know, the Cavs were thinking we'll put the ball in his hands, he can be another creator, but it has looked for the second straight year that the postseason stage is simply too big for him. And he's not tough enough for the extra physicality that happens throughout the course of the playoffs. And Jordan Clarkson, the thinking was, okay, this is an ISO guy. He's a bench scorer. When everybody switches, he's going to be able to attack guys off the dribble. And he's had some moments, I guess, since arriving, but not many of them have happened in the postseason, if any have happened in the postseason. It seems like it's just too big for him. And the postseason is a time where everybody knows your strengths, everybody knows your weaknesses, and they try and prey on your weaknesses. And they try and make it so that you can't do the things that you want to do. Everybody's got the scouting report on Jordan Clarkson. And I just don't think his game is polished enough where he can counter those things and he can still be an effective player when the team makes him uncomfortable and takes away what it is he wants to do best. So in theory, these guys should help against the Warriors because it seems like they have the traits to be positive for the Cavs coming off the bench or in the starting lineup. But after what they've done in the postseason, or I guess the better way to phrase it is what they haven't done in the postseason, I think it would be hard for Ty Lue to trust the guys.
1: And that's always, to me, the thing that really surviving in a a playoff series – is about defending. It's not really about offense at this point because I think, you know, most of the guys that Cleveland can throw on the floor at least have some offensive game, right? To me where these guys haven't been able to survive is on the defensive end. And you saw it in game seven of the rocket series where they try and get Ryan Anderson three minutes so that someone else can get a break. He just can't survive out there. Like that to me is the thing that keeps Clarkson and Nance and hood rooted to the bench is they're not obviously they're not doing enough offensively but it really is about who can be run off the floor and i think opponents get saucerized when they come into the game and that to me is the is the beauty of playoff basketball it's seeing how teams can pick on weaknesses and i think yeah any opponent views those guys as fairly obvious weaknesses particularly on the defensive end
0: and i think it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things that the cavs ran into the last couple of years against golden state is like Every decision that they made when it came to their lineup, they had to give up something. Like, okay, if we're going to go to Amon Shumpert, we feel like we're getting a little bit of something on the defensive end, tenacity, energy, feisty on ball defense. But we're also getting a guy who the Golden State Warriors are just going to leave, and they're going to dare him to take those open shots, and they're going to tempt him into that, and that's going to be a win for them defensively and with Channing Frye like he couldn't even see the floor against the Warriors because every time he saw the floor Steve Kerr subbed in somebody to downsize to take away the things that he did best and all of a sudden Ty had to yank him off the floor so it was an either or proposition with some of these guys and that's why honestly I think going into the series as weird as this sounds and as frustrating as he can be I think Jeff Green is going to be one of the most important others because he brings that two-way capability, and Ty Lue talks about his defensive versatility, his ability to defend point guards and centers. And if you think back to the Rockets-Warriors series that went seven games, P.J. Tucker was an integral piece for the Rockets, both offensively and defensively. And Jeff Green has that same kind of versatility and that same kind of skill set. And for the Cavs the last couple of years, Richard Jefferson played that kind of role. And I think Jeff Green is going to step into that kind of role. And I think he's going to play some center. I think he's going to play some power forward. I think that's the guy that's probably going to get the Durant matchup a lot so that LeBron doesn't have to have the Durant matchup the way that he did last year in the NBA Finals. So Jeff Green, as weird as it sounds, he was great in Game 7 against the Celtics.
2: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
1: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
0: Like What he brings is something that the Cavs absolutely need in this series against the Warriors.
2: And that's fascinating because we're talking about a guy on a team that signed all these guys to these big contracts. Right. Um, you're talking about a guy who's making the minimum, and, and that's who they're— yep. They're counting on. Uh, I want to get to one more question before we move on to the Warriors, because I think this is interesting for fans down here in Miami. You take a look at Dwayne Wade's numbers after he came to Miami, and there was more focus on them, and he got the warm welcome. And I I think – and I I polled this on Five Reasons Sports, and I asked the question, if you were Dwayne, would you – Prefer to be in the finals right now, or would you prefer to get sort of the warm homecoming that he got with Miami and the moments he had in Miami? And and of course we have a Miami based audience, Chris. So seventy five percent of people said that they think, you know, it was better for Dwayne to come back to Miami. What? But believe it or not, right, uh, 75% said said that it was better for him to come back to Miami. And he did have moments, right? He had that game where he beat Philadelphia at the end, and he had a great yep. game in the, in the playoffs against Philly. But I'm curious from your perspective here, because you were around Dwayne, would he have played much? Because when we talk about uh, Hood and Clarkson, One of the reasons that Kobe Altman and Dwayne talked about him coming down here and accepting the trade was because Dwayne's minutes were going to go down because they were going to be playing younger players, and now they're not even playing those players. Like, Hood's refusing to come on the floor. Clarkson's minutes have been cut, and so they're playing JR and Kyle Korver, who, as you mentioned, Kyle's still a great shooter, but he's 37 years old. I believe that Dwayne would be playing 25 minutes a game in this series if he was with the Cavs right now. I don't know how well it would go against a team like the Warriors, but... But what do you think his role would have been?
0: So it's hard to know that because I got the sense, guys, that mm, how can I phrase this? Ty Lu didn't like the style that they had to play because of Dwayne. I don't think it was so much he didn't love Dwayne the player and he didn't see his value. Just don't think he felt like Dwayne was a great fit for the way that they wanted to play. And I think he was wrong about that, actually. And I think they gave up on him too soon. And the fact that they gave up Dwayne Wade for absolutely nothing was simply silly to me because he's the kind of guy who has always been better in the postseason and he has always fit better in the postseason than in the regular season. Like, you don't judge Dwayne Wade at this point in his career on what he did for you or how you looked in the regular season with him. He's a playoff player. And the things that he brings are things that the Cavs are missing. They don't have a secondary creator aside from LeBron, at least a consistent one. Like, George Hill can be that from time to time. But he's a completely different player on the road than he is at home. Like, Dwayne, it's not going to matter where. It's not going to matter what team they're playing against. He's not going to be rattled by the moment. He's been on the biggest stage before. So you have more knowledge about him and what you're going to get from him. Ty won't admit it, but every time he goes to Jordan Clarkson, there's no way that he could know what he's going to get from the guy. He's a complete and utter wild card. So they made this decision, as you said, Ethan, because they wanted to open up minutes for guys who simply can't get in the rotation right now, or can't be trusted right now. For all the things that are negative about Dwayne at this stage in his career, you have an idea of what you're going to get from him and you can trust him in the biggest moments. And most importantly, the most important player on the court for the Cavs would have trusted him in big moments, and that's LeBron. And there's a reason why LeBron has always wanted veterans over young guys. And I think you saw it in Game 7 against the Celtics. Jalen Brown looked petrified. Terry Rozier was awful. And who did LeBron go to in the second half? He kept feeding Jeff Green, veteran guy. He kept going to J.R. Smith, won championships with him. And those guys can be erratic by nature because they're role players. But LeBron always feels better about veterans in the postseason and in the finals than he does the young guys.
1: See, Chris, to me the thing that – and you mentioned how they kind of made the trades with the Warriors in mind. I don't give them that much credit because I think they made the trades (laughs) with the the regular season in mind. They were just trying to move on from this drama – from the discord in the locker room that that appeared to be pretty obvious. And I think that they just wanted to get off of some of the problems that they were having and all these players only meetings and all that stuff. And I think they wanted to have a regular season team that can just get on a little bit and hope that those guys would be up for it in the playoffs. You can't tell me that Isaiah Thomas, even if even though he didn't finish the season healthy, but maybe he finishes the season healthy in Cleveland, who the hell knows, butterfly effect. But but Dwayne Wade being in, in the playoffs, like they were building a regular season team. I think this is an overall flaw in the league and not just with Cleveland, so I don't particularly blame them. I think teams, for the most part, are built and paid for on regular seasons, right? That's why you see a lot of average players getting big contracts because they help you win games in the regular season. But when it comes down to playoff time, who can you rely on? So many guys in this league are getting money, and you simply cannot rely on them in big playoff situations. And there's a lot of them on Cleveland, and it's because I think they were just trying to survive a regular season that was going pretty poorly.
2: All right, let's get to part four here. We've talked a lot about the Cavs. Let's get to the Warriors. And we've talked about Iguodala's injury a little bit. Clearly, that could be a factor here. I looked back at some of the numbers from last year, and – in that series, everybody talks about the Warriors bench not being what it was. But in that series, only six guys averaged 15 minutes or more for the Warriors. So Steve Kerr really shortened the bench last year. The only guy who's gone is Ian Clark. Pachulia is still there, but he's been replaced in the rotation, for the most part, by Looney and Bell. So they're a little bit different. But the core six, you know, provided Iguadala can give them what Iguadala typically gives them, the core six is healthy. To me, when I look at this, you know, it, it's a lot of hope. Chris, uh, on the Cavs part. (laughs) It's like, it's right. It's like, will Curry have the kind of finals that he's had a couple of times now where it takes him a while? to get going. Um, will will Durant go to ISO in some situations and take them right. out of the flow of their offense. Beyond that though, I mean we've seen now with Clay that he can disappear for three games and then I don't know why it is always game six, but then he just has one of these explosions for a quarter. When you look at it from the Warriors perspective, are there any problems at all that the Cavaliers can present? I, I it's crazy to say this, but the Cavs have played better defense lately. Is there anything that the Cavs can do defensively to slow any of those guys down
0: do i feel like we're doing the same thing with the Cavs that we did last year in the regular season and in the postseason like towards the end of the regular season there was this conversation about oh look you know they've turned up the intensity they've quote unquote flipped the switch And then in the postseason, they played against Indiana. They played against Toronto, two of those games without Kyle Lowry. Then they played against Boston, and they were never worried about Boston because of Isaiah, and they felt like they could just exploit him over and over and over again. Then he got hurt, and that made Boston even worse because they didn't have anywhere to go for offense. But our view of the Cavs and their defense, I think last year was skewed by the competition that they played. I think going into these finals against the Warriors, the view of the Cavs defense getting better has been skewed by two things. One, the last two games were played primarily without Kevin Love and that's Always going to make the Cavs a better defensive team because the opponent doesn't have the dude with the big bullseye on him. The second thing is, they were playing against Boston that just wasn't ready. Why the Cavs won Game 7 had a lot to do with them and the way that they played, but you can't tell the story of Game 7 against Boston without pointing out the fact that Jalen Brown, Terry Rozier, those guys weren't ready, and Boston was missing Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward, guys that had been there before that wouldn't have looked petrified on that stage in that kind of environment. So I guess that's my long way of saying I don't think the Cavs' defense has improved that much. The truth is buried beneath a pile of opponents that are not the same level of the Warriors. But the reality is, if the Cavs are even going to make this a series, I'm not even talking about winning the series because I think a miracle would have to happen for (laughs) that. But if the Cavs are going to make this a series, it's going to have to be the same as 2016. Something unforeseen is going to have to happen. Steph would have to be less than 100% because he slips on a wet spot. Andre Iguodala would have to miss a majority of these games. Draymond Green would have to lose his cool and get suspended. That all happened. The Cavs needed that to happen for them to win in 2016. And I think that's the reality of playing against this beast that is the Warriors. Something unforeseen has to happen to open the door for a team to capitalize on it. Houston almost took advantage of Andre Iguodala missing so much time in that series, but they couldn't in part because they lost Chris Paul. Um, But that was their opportunity. Something unforeseen happened, and they couldn't capitalize. That's what would have to happen for the Cavs because there just aren't a lot of paths to a series win here for them. They're not good enough defensively. I think they're going to struggle big time offensively, especially without Kyrie. And even if Andre Iguodala is not right, and I think that looms, I think it looms a lot because they would be playing four on five at times because the guys that replace him are almost non-offensive threats. And that might allow the Cavs to get away with hiding Kevin Love more often, but even without Iguodala, like the Cavs better players have a hard time in this series against the Warriors because of the matchup. And it's hard to see that changing unless Something unforeseen happens.
1: Now they
0: might kind of
1: be on their way already uh, in terms of unforeseen things because of Iguodala's injury lingering into the next series, and also uh, Draymond Green rolling his ankle during Game Seven. Uh, he told the press after the game. He said, "Quote: I told our trainer during the game I rolled my ankle badly, and I don't feel a thing right now. I know it was the adrenaline after the game." Woo. It'll be good, though. That, that, was, that was my own effect. That was not Draymond's. I just, from a defensive point of view, since, since, Ethan, that's where your question started, I do think that Houston laying out that blueprint of switching and ISO, the two things in conjunction, I think Cleveland can follow that game plan. Now, the one thing that we are underrating is how good Houston was. Like Houston was really damn good in that series. Yes. And I don't Thank think you. that that Cleveland is going to be able to replicate that very easily, but at least we can kind of see that there is a blueprint there. I they obviously don't have a level of talent that's close to what Houston has outside of their main superstars. But Houston at least laid out the blueprint for how to go and do it. So as long as Cleveland can stay up on that, on that tape, maybe it won't be for game one, but at some point in the series, I think you'll start to see Cleveland maybe frustrate golden state a little bit.
0: Okay. So I think that's a fair point. And I do think there is a blueprint to beat every team in the NBA, but here's the thing. Uh, Some carpenter can come over to my house and say, Hey, Chris, here's the blueprint on how to renovate your bathroom, right? He can give me that blueprint and you know what would happen? I would stare at it and not have any clue how to actually go out and execute it. I'd be like, I have no freaking clue what I'm doing here.
1: How do I read this blueprint?
0: Yes, exactly right. So it's great that I've got the blueprint, but I don't have the pieces to go out and actually execute said blueprint. And I think that's the thing that the Cavs might run into. Like Houston was able to switch one through five because that's who they were at their core. And that's something that takes a lot of time, right? You have to have communication. You have to have good defensive habits. Like that has to be you. You can't just be like, oh, you know what? In this series, I'm going to switch one through five and it's going to be seamless. No, because one slip up and all of a sudden it's a backdoor cut. And if you aren't trained in doing that, it's very, very difficult to master in such a short time. It took the Warriors how many years? It took Houston all season long to hone those habits so that they could be that kind of switchy team. Uh, The other thing is, like, they were able to switch everything because they had so many good individual defenders. Like, P.J. Tucker is a good, tough, rugged individual defender. Chris Paul is one of the best point guard defenders in the NBA. Trevor Ariza, very, very good. Eric Gordon, very feisty. Like, the only negative defender that they had was James Harden. And even he tried a lot in that series against the Warriors. So, despite how Houston's defense looked in that series, by the way, do you realize that the Warriors had an offensive rating of 111 in the series against the Rockets? 111 <laughs> was their offensive rating. And people are saying that Houston frustrated them and they did a really good job defensively. And I think they did. And the Warriors were still great on offense. And that was with better pieces to execute that particular game plan. Like, you're going to switch Kevin Love? Like, good luck.
1: You know what I think ended up happening to a lot of people is people kind of got carried away with what Houston did in first halves. And Golden State's offensive rating in the first halves of games in that series was 99.7. So that kind of reflects what people were seeing with their eyes. But then you kind of move on towards the rest of the game. Oh, my God. It's <laughs> even it's even worse than I imagined. The offensive rating for Golden State in the third quarter was one hundred and thirty six. Uh, so so, so so for whatever reason terrible first half like Sacramento Kings level first half and then the greatest thing that's ever happened to basketball in the third
2: quarter and a couple of numbers here. Uh, you talk about that ridiculous second half uh, offensive rating. Kevin Durant's offensive rating in the 2017 Finals against the Cavs was 139. That's for the entire what? game, 139. <laughs> and and, and wow. beyond beyond that. And, and here's another issue uh, too. I mean, you mentioned you know good luck switching J.R. Smith, you know, to anything but the club basically in this series. Um, <laughs> y- you can't switch Kevin Love. Also, Kyle Korver. In the 2017 finals, had 126 defensive rating, and he was a minus 22 net rating in that series. So we talk about how important Korver could be because he's been like the second most consistent Cav recently and I don't know how often you can play him in this series because I, although right. I think he's been an underrated defender throughout the course of his career again he's 37 years old so that's going to be really challenging and
1: now let's take a quick break. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Heat Beat Podcast. I'm your host Aaron Carla Navas and with us today was Michael Wallace of Grind City Media formerly of ESPN and used to cover the Heat. Michael shared all sorts of great stories with us from the time he called Gary Payne a liar to what actually happened to for Alston in 2009. Not to mentioned this incredible Udonis Haslam story. So one of the funniest stories is that after he got married, he tied the knot with Faith, uh, his wife. Their walk-off song when they walked away from the podium was Tupac and Snoop's two of America's Most Wanted. Ain't nothing but a gangster party. That's how they walked off the stage from their wedding. With that. That's <laughs> after they kissed the bride, they started playing that one. Check out all that and more on the Heat Beat Podcast now on the 5 Reasons Podcast Network.
2: Let's move on to part five here. You've made it pretty clear, Chris, that that you think it would take a miracle for the Cavs to win this series. I want to pose this question to you both ways. If the Cavs win this series, does LeBron stay? If the Cavs lose this series, does LeBron stay?
0: Hmm. So I think the answer is almost the same. Like, if they won the series, it would be harder for him to leave. But it would also be like, hey, look what I did. I delivered on that now I can go or something like that. It's not going to get any better than it is right now with us beating the Warriors and and me leading us to win against the Warriors. So I could see him leaving still. If they lose, I could also see him staying because it's home. And I think the hard thing here, and Ethan, you might have a really good view of this and same with you, Chris, being in Miami, it's hard to know exactly at this stage of his career and his life what it is that's going to drive this decision. I think when he made the decision the first time in 2010, it was obvious what was driving him. He was seeking validation. The only way that he could get that validation was with rings multiple ones and he didn't feel like what he had in cleveland was good enough to compete for championships and that was the number one thing that drove him at that time and it sent him to miami and he made the right decision and then in 2014 that decision was yes part of basketball but it was also part of his legacy and it was also part of off the court things he wanted to make good on a promise to cleveland to deliver them a championship He had a smudge on his resume, the decision that he made in 2010, and the backlash from that. And there was only one way that he could undo that, and that was to come back to Cleveland and lead them to a championship. And I just think it's hard to know now at 33 years old and 15 years in what's going to be the driving force because his legacy is secure. There are things that he can do that would enhance it even more. And maybe give him the edge in the goat conversation. But it can't go back the other way. It's set. And I think he knows that. So because of that, I don't know what's going to drive this decision. I felt like in previous years, I had a handle on what was going to drive the decision. Because maybe he's going to look at it and say, this is home. This is a place that tugs on my heartstrings. I want my sons to play at St. Vincent, St. Mary on LeBron James court. I want to be around family. And I think the Cavs deep down are hoping that this becomes an emotional decision more so than a basketball decision because if it's a basketball decision. I don't know how they can compete with some of these other teams. The other thing that is a factor here, I don't know the perfect destination exists and maybe it never did, but the more and more you think about some of these places where he could go beyond Cleveland, like Houston, Philadelphia, the Los Angeles Lakers, maybe go back to Miami, just the ones that you hear, it feels like you can poke holes in those a little bit easier than you could in the past.
1: Well, first off, if they win, he's staying, because it would be an all-time monumental achievement, and I don't think you could leave after doing that, but if they lose in five... It would
0: be harder to, it would be harder to, but if he stays, like, how does he enhance the legacy more?
1: I mean, just, you can't leave after pulling something like that <laughs> off, I mean, it would just be, it, if like, for me, if the Heat had won the finals in 2014, he would have stayed in Miami because. A Probably. chance, a, a, a chance to fourpeat. A ch- like you know, you, you don't leave a, a three-time defending champion. But I think that if they lose in five, I I almost wonder if the fact that he was able to get to the finals without really very much help kind of convinces him that he doesn't need to go anywhere and that he can just continue on this track and unless he identifies someone or a situation where he can actually compete to win the championship like if he's actually going to maybe take the Jordan thing seriously or getting getting to 10 finals getting to 11 finals and winning five like if if he's actually going to try to identify a place where he can go and win again like if that's the next step for him then I think I think it's got to be somewhere other than Cleveland it's got to be Philly it's got to be the Lakers it's got to be somewhere a front office executive outlines here is the way that we put together a team around you that can win the championship not compete for it that can win and so I don't see that as as pretty obvious but I think if they lose which to me is a very likely scenario I think he's gone And I look at the situations the way that Fedor does
2: in this sense. There is no perfect situation. You're right. And and I think you can make a case, and I know the Miami fans are not going to like this. I I have a hard time making a case for the Heat Uh, just because their
0: -hmm. their
2: cap situation is what it is. And, And I think to be able to clean out that cap you're going to have to move one or two of the really nice young pieces that they have, and I, I don't know that the other guys that they have are enough of a supporting cast for him to feel that it's really better than he has right right now. But you I think couldn't, you, couldn't, look,
1: you couldn't create the requisite cap space to sign him and another star without totally destroying the team.
2: Right. I mean, for, for sure, uh, Adebayo, Richardson, and Winslow would be gone, and again, those are the three you know young pieces that you like on the team. So, looking beyond the Heat. All of the three other situations, you're right. You can poke holes in all of them. I think Philadelphia makes the most sense, and I think it makes the most sense— even though there's a skill set that he shares with Simmons that will make it hard for the two of them to collaborate at first. Um, And if Simmons Mm -hmm. never learns to shoot, then it becomes more of a problem. But you mentioned, and I think this is a really fascinating discussion, because you mentioned you don't know what would drive him at this point. I think what would drive him at this point is setting up the next generation, because he's always talked about that. And the big difference between him and Jordan is that LeBron has always embraced the young players in the league. Jordan didn't do that. And I remember having conversations with LeBron about this because LeBron always wanted the older players to embrace him, and they never did. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember Mm -hmm. a conversation I had with him at the All-Star game. I think it might have been in Orlando and just walking with him and saying, have any of the great former players come up to you and talked about what a great first half you've had? And he looks at me and he goes, am I intimidating? And I said, no. And he says, I don't know why they don't come up to me then. He says, but nobody ever does. And so nobody embraced him in the way that he's embraced the young players. And so for a legacy perspective and where he can anoint the young king, which he's already started to do on social media mm-hmm. in Ben Simmons, from a business perspective and propping up yeah. his agency clutch – to be able to get Ben Simmons to the finals every year and for them to do commercials together and shoes together and all of that kind of stuff, I think that would be sort of, and then him being able to slide into more of a secondary role as his career progresses. I think that makes the most sense. I look at the Houston situation. I mean, we talk about Simmons and LeBron trying to share the ball like he's going to share the ball with Harden and CP3. I don't know about right. that. And then the Lakers. Yeah, it could be compelling if they could get Paul George or Kawhi out there with him. But then you got to go through the Warriors out there. You've got to follow the Kobe legacy, the Magic legacy and all that. He didn't want to follow the Jordan legacy in Chicago. Philadelphia is a franchise that is like waiting for big time success I think Philadelphia is the most likely option.
0: I keep going back to Philly and L.A., and I think some of the things that you mentioned, Ethan, whether we know exactly what's going to drive this decision or not, and I think there are a lot of layers to this decision, and people are trying to make it a little bit too simplistic sometimes. Legacy matters to LeBron. Everybody knows that. And the way that he could enhance his legacy even more is to go to a third team and elevate that team to a championship after they hadn't gotten anywhere close to that in recent times. And to me, that's the Los Angeles Lakers. Like, if he takes the Lakers, the historic Lakers, back to prominence, like, come on now. I don't know what else you could say about LeBron. Or if he does the same thing with the Sixers, I don't know what else you could say. The other thing is, I don't know that this matters as much to him, but I think he's aware of the narrative that a lot of what he has accomplished throughout his career, as silly as this actually is, people do say this, a lot of what he has accomplished throughout his career is because he's been in the weaker Eastern Conference and he hasn't had the toughest road to get to the NBA finals or win a championship the way that he could squash all of that is to go to the Western Conference, make the path tougher for him, and then still get to the NBA Finals and say, look, I did it in the East, I did it in the West, that sort of thing.
2: I lean Philadelphia on this one. I I know what you're talking about with the Lakers. I I think there's a possibility there. To me, it's one of those three teams. I I don't see it being outside of that. Chris, we really appreciate it. You can find him at Chris Fedor, that's F E. D-O-R again. He's on 92.3 up in Cleveland, also at Cleveland.com. You also may someday find him at another Taylor Swift concert if he decides that Taylor is important enough to see a second time. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it.
0: You gotta guess. Anytime.